Hi everyone and welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I'm Nicola and we are so glad to see you joining our church community. Imagine your sin being exposed, your nakedness being put before the people you most admire or even fear. Imagine their ridicule, disgust, and judgment towards you. Then picture Jesus saying, where are your accusers? Do none condemn you? Then neither do I condemn you. This powerful story of Jesus as seen through the eyes of a woman should remind us what forgiveness, mercy, and grace Jesus has for each of us. Today, Pastor Char Broderson continues through our series in the book of John in chapter seven and eight, where we'll see the first of Jesus's I am statements in the story of the adulterous woman. Rather than do my John, Gospel of John spiel, a few of you chuckle, I want to just step right into this passage, and I want to point out that we just read a story about powerful, devout religious men using their power and their religious teaching to oppress and potentially put to death a powerless woman. It's almost like something you could read in the morning paper. Now, some see this as the M.O. of all religions and especially of Christianity. This is what Christianity does. This is what religions do. They oppress weak and vulnerable people. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, says, some would claim that Christianity at heart is misogynistic silencing, sidelining, and trampling on women. Many today believe that women's rights are antithetical to Christianity, or at least to any form of Christianity that clings to the Bible as its source of truth. She goes on, but far from suppressing women's voices and devaluing their lives, the first century gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John connect us to the testimony of women who met Jesus in the flesh 2,000 years ago. And the Jesus we see through their eyes is beautiful, historically accurate, and gives incredible dignity and honor to women. McLaughlin goes on to point out that all four Gospels tell multiple stories of Jesus relating to women. Poor women, rich women, sick women, grieving women, old women, young women, Jewish women, and Gentile women. Women known for their sinfulness, women known for their virtue. Virgins and widows, prostitutes and prophetesses. She says, through these stories, we see a man who valued women of all kinds, especially those vilified by others. Indeed, the way that Jesus treated women tore up the belief that women are innately inferior to men, a belief that was pervasive in the ancient world. We should not be surprised, therefore, that women have been flocking to Jesus ever since. Now, Bart Ehrman, uh, who is a New Testament scholar and skeptic, um, 
In his book, The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion Swept the World, he explains a little bit about the ancient Roman world. Listen to what he says. He says, while the Roman Empire was extremely diverse, its inhabitants shared some basic assumptions. If one word could encapsulate the common social, political, and personal ethic of the time, it would be dominance. He goes on, in a culture of dominance, those with power are expected to assert their will over those who are weak. Rulers are to dominate their subjects, patrons their clients, masters their slaves, men their women. Leaders of the Christian church, he goes on to say, preached and urged an ethic of love and service. One person was not more important than the other. All were on the same footing before God. The master was no more significant than the slave, the patron than the client, the husband than the wife, the powerful than the weak, the robust than the diseased. Rebecca McLaughlin comments on all this. She says, this ethical reversal based on Jesus' words and actions made Christianity especially attractive to women in the ancient world and form the basis of our modern belief that women are fundamentally equal to men. So far from being antithetical to women's rights, Christianity is their first and best foundation. Now, I say all this because this is the elephant in the room. I don't know how you could read this passage or actually any of the stories in the Gospels of Jesus and his interactions with women and not reflect on what's happening in our recent times. We've heard many stories, and the history books confirm stories of powerful religious men who have used their power to oppress the weak, and especially women without power or status, all in the name of their religion or biblical doctrine. But we need to be very clear. We see nothing of this sort in the life of Jesus or in the practices of the early church. Quite the opposite, in fact. That is not an excuse for what is happening in our current culture. It's not an excuse for the evil that has been done, but it should bring some clarity to us so that we might name this for what it is. It is evil and it is antichrist. That's what it is. It is shaming to the name of our Lord Jesus who actually had a reputation for protecting women from these type of religious monsters. Therefore, when Christianity and Christian leaders have been misogynistic, and they have, silencing, sidelining, and trampling on women, we should clearly see this as being out of sync and antithetical to the way of Jesus and the way of God's people. Jesus is the liberator of the oppressed. He gives voice to the voiceless. He gives power to the weak. So God help us that we might follow our Lord in his bravery and in his way. Now, this story has brought so much comfort to many who have found themselves under the weight of shame and guilt uh, brought on by their sin. And to all who have been oppressed by, I would say, very devout religious people, to know that Jesus does not condemn you, 
but instead offers forgiveness, freedom from sin and its judgment is a profoundly powerful display of the message of the gospel. This story really is a magnificent display of the wisdom, the grace, and truth that was the reputation of Jesus' ministry. Now, because of all that, it might be somewhat bothersome when you look at your modern translation, and if you're reading from the NIV this morning, to look down and see the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53, 8 through 11. What the heck? What's with that? So what's the deal? Why is this in my Bible if it's missing from most of the early manuscripts? Well, let's just talk about this for a minute, kind of uh, clear the table so we can get to the meat. So this story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. That is true. The earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John and pass directly from John 7.52 to John 8.12. None of the Eastern church fathers cite this passage before the 10th century when dealing with the gospel. And when the story starts to appear in manuscript copies of the Gospel of John, it shows up actually in three different places other than here. After 7 verse 36, 7 verse 44, and John 21, 25. And in one manuscript of the Gospel of Luke, it shows up after Luke 21, 38. Now, scholars point out that it's style of writing, its vocabulary that's chosen is more unlike the rest of John's gospel than any other paragraph in the gospel. And if you read, if you were just to skip from 52, 752 to 812, the passage actually flows quite nicely, carrying on the theme of the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus' sermon on judgment as he goes into the I am statements. So then the question is, okay, Char, why is it in our Bibles then? Bruce Metzger, who was considered one of the most influential New Testament scholars of the last century, says, the evidence for the non-Yohannine, that's not John, origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. At the same time, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western church. And so this is why it eventually found its way into the New Testament canon. This story, although not an original part of the gospel accounts, is a legitimate historical event in Jesus' ministry. This story appears to be that of eyewitness account by the language that's used. Also, the story's accurate displaying Jesus' style of ministry, right? His tension with the religious leaders and his compassion toward sinners. So this is how I see this story. It is a true historical account of Jesus. It really happened, and probably at this time when Jesus was at the feast, of tabernacles, although it was not recorded by John. Now, here's the thing that's kind of cool about this, and you could agree, disagree, it doesn't really matter. 
John has already told us in his gospel, there are many things that Jesus did and said that are not written in this book. In fact, at the end of John's gospel, he says, you know what, there are so many things that Jesus said and did, I don't know if all the books in all the world could contain it. I think it's pretty incredible that we have a story that is not a part of this original gospel, but it is a Jesus story. This is one of those Jesus stories. It's almost like John's like, you know what, there are so many stories of what Jesus said and did, and this is, you know, I've written down these specific ones, but there are so many out there. Man, all the books in all the world cannot contain it. And somebody's just like, hey, let's stick one of those Jesus stories right here. Just to reiterate, all the varied stories of Jesus. That's a fascinating thought, isn't it? We have incredible stories of the life and the works and the words of Jesus. And to think that the gospel stories are just giving us just, man, just a handful, each one of them, just a handful of these stories that we might know Jesus, that we might believe, but oh, all the books in all the world could not contain the goodness of Jesus and the good things that he did to people who were broken and in need of God's grace. That is powerful. Now, the woman caught in adultery story introduces the chapter and precedes Jesus' first I am statement of John's gospel. This story was placed in the canon rather late, as I said, but it presents pictorially, dramatically, the heart of grace of these two chapters, mysterious I am statements. Here, we see the great I am, Israel's lawgiver, the judge of all, enfleshed, administering true righteous judgment, and it's full of mercy, grace, and truth. So let's talk a little bit about the story now. So John's told us that the Pharisees, who are the teachers of Israel and the religious elite, are trying to trap Jesus. We've been reading again and again about their various confrontations with Jesus. They want to either get him in contradiction of Mosaic law, so they have a legitimate reason to reject him and to discredit him in the eyes of the people and eventually put him to death. See, the common people were believing in Jesus and it is enraging the religious leaders and so they set a trap for him. They bring him a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery, and they remind him before everybody, according to the law of Moses, the righteous standard of our people, such people should be put to death. But Jesus, what do you say? It's a bit of a moral conundrum, actually. If Jesus upholds the law, the common people that he is ministering to will see themselves estranged from Jesus. He's heavy, he's harsh, just like the religious leaders. Not only that, but if Jesus commands the upholding of the Mosaic law, he will be seen as insubordinate 
to the Roman authorities who reserve the right to capital punishment, and he risks an early arrest, trial, and execution. If he does not uphold the Mosaic law, he stands as a lawbreaker, clearly, before everyone. He's light on our most sacred text. He is easy on holiness. Someone who disregards the law of God as they have previously accused Jesus regarding the Sabbath. And in this way, they can both discredit him and they can potentially put him to death as a false prophet according to their law. Now, rather than Jesus jumping to hasty judgment, he simply stoops down and begins writing in the sand almost as if he hasn't heard the accusation at all. The question has been put forward, what is he doing? Some have thought maybe Jesus is writing down the sins of the religious leaders. And so then he's going to show them that you know, none is worthy to judge. Maybe he's just doodling. He's buying time. One commentator suggested this, and I love this. He says, maybe he's using a visual distraction to remove condemning eyes off the woman. All are possible. It's fascinating, though, to note that elsewhere, Jesus speaks of the finger of God to refer to his exercise of divine authority and power. That's in Luke 11.20. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out demons. Remember, the religious leaders were fascinated that Jesus, with a word, could send demons fleeing when their own students of the law had to go through rigorous you know, ritual and all of these things to do their exorcism. Jesus could speak it with a word. They thought, oh, he must be in cahoots with Beelzebub. We might also remember that it was God's finger that the law was written on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. Or maybe you think of that passage in the story of Daniel where the wicked king is pledging to the gods of gold and silver and the finger of God writes on the wall, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. It's fascinating that Jesus stoops down and begins to write, John highlights, with his finger in the sand. Now, as the question continues to be asked, Jesus, what do you say? Jesus, did you not hear us? What do you say? What is your judgment? Jesus finally rises and says something quite profound, but also very risky. Stands up and says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then simply stoops down once again and proceeds to write in the dirt. I mean, there could have been one bold individual in that crowd, right? Like, all right, here we go. I mean, I was reading this the other day, and I was just like, 
wow, that feels risky, <laughs> Jesus. But we're told that at this word, each of them begin to slip away from the oldest to the youngest until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Imagine she looked around, looked at Jesus and said, no one, sir. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I think we need to acknowledge that the Pharisees do not care one bit about true judgment or the upholding of the Mosaic law. They are just looking to trap Jesus. And this woman and her sin is the bait. She's a pawn in their scheme to trap Jesus. Now, if you don't know, the law does in fact command the death of adulterers. This shows the seriousness with which Israel, God's people, were to take in their marriage covenants and the call to faithfulness, not just to one another in marriage, but as a response to God's own faithfulness, as a way to live faithfully as a good neighbor. You remember the two tablets of the law deal with both our relationship with God, but then our relationship with one another. And marriage faithfulness is as much about our faithfulness to our spouse as it is to our neighbor, as it is to the community. It's a mark of fidelity. The question then is, where is the man? If they truly care about faithfulness, fidelity to God's law, if they are truly passionate, then the man would be there as well. Especially if they were caught in the act of adultery. And through that, we see that this is just deceitful hypocrisy and their misogyny. This woman is, in fact, a sinner according to the law, but so is the man. The fact that she is alone and brought to trial makes her also a victim of injustice. So Jesus responds... Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. By doing this, Jesus manages both to recognize, if not honor, the ancient capital teaching. Stone her. That's what the law says. And at the same time, to honor even more his unique compassion for this and for every shamed human being and so to avert a cruel use of the Bible. Now, although the religious leaders aren't interested in true judgment and justice, Jesus is. And we cannot take Jesus' statement to mean, since everyone is a sinner, no one has the right to judge anyone else. We cannot take Jesus' statement to mean sexual sin and adultery doesn't really matter to God. What God cares about is your heart. Jesus' word here is actually meant to expose a misuse of the law. 
The point is not that judges and executioners must be sinless. The point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit and a desire for restoration and healing. And if it's not, all you get is heartlessness and hypocrisy of self-righteousness. See, God's ultimate desire for people is not judgment, but salvation, restoration, and blessing. And I think it's here that we come to the religious problems, or excuse me, the religious problem. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on John says this. This is pretty heart-searching. The possibility and peril of all teachers of Scripture and of all serious believers of all times and all places is we take our book very seriously. But as a result, we frequently tend to be super hard on sinners and on just about everyone else. We take our book very seriously. We take holiness very, very seriously but it results in hardness of heart, a lack of empathy and compassion. But of course, there's the other side. There's the irreligious problem, right? We are equally faced with the fact that if we take a light view of scripture and morality, we're in danger of lowering the standard of what is right. What does good to others? And not taking sin and its destroying power serious enough. And we could equally make that mistake, as I mentioned earlier, not understanding what Jesus is doing here, and say about any sin, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. What God cares about is our hearts. So it doesn't really matter what we do with our physical bodies. But a true and honest reading of the Bible won't allow us to do that. So how can we hold together both justice and compassion, both truth and grace? How does Jesus do it? Now, Jesus' words, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Recognize that this woman has indeed sinned. That she stands condemned under the law. But, the true and righteous judge, Jesus, has passed over her and her sin. See, in order for Jesus to say these words and not undermine the law, the righteous requirements of God's law, and for them to have any weight or sort of power to forgive or transform this woman, we know it will cost Jesus everything. For Jesus to say, neither do I condemn you, Jesus will be condemned. He will be pinned to the cross. He will be condemned by his own people. They will rise in judgment over him. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. 
Because he will be condemned in her place, he will bear in himself on the cross the punishment for her sin and every other sin. He will destroy her sin in his own body in order that he might show compassion and grace upon her. You see, this is the only way, the only way for Jesus to hold together the tension of justice and compassion, grace and truth together, is to give himself in her place, to pay the price, the cost that her sin deserves. Now, Paul makes this very clear in his letters that this is, in fact, what Christ has done for his people. Paul in the book of Romans writes, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. To which the law and prophets also spoke about. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference whether you're Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his rightness, his righteousness, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, this really is the only way. The only way for God to not condemn us for our sin, to freely forgive us, is that God assumes the cost of our sin. He takes it upon himself and pays for it at the cross. See, if we lighten or downplay our sin and the gravity of it, then we inevitably cheapen the work of the cross, the work that Christ did, the price he paid for us. We take away from the cost of Jesus' life, that precious blood. We sing about that, don't we, in our songs? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Why is it precious? Oh, because there's no other cleansing power like it. There's no other human being like him who is sinless. It costs Jesus Everything is the point to say to this woman, neither do I condemn you. And it is only in and through Jesus that we can take the law of God seriously and also take God's compassion, forgiveness, and love for sin against sinners equally seriously. Now, some might think, well, how does this not create cheap grace? And maybe you've seen churches or communities who you feel like they've overemphasized grace and it's just led to mayhem. 
It's just led to more sin and licentiousness in those communities. How does this not make people think of sin lightly and forgiveness flippantly? And isn't this the problem in the church at the moment, that it's gotten light on sin, it's overemphasized grace? And some do see this as falling under, falling under the category of cheap grace or irreligion, but that's not how the scriptures see it. The scriptures, in fact, see the grace and forgiveness of God as the most powerful catalyst that humans can experience to send our lives in a totally new and powerful trajectory forever. A trajectory of grace and forgiveness at work in the world through our own lives. I love what Paul says. This is probably... I don't know, probably one of the most compelling verses in all of Scripture for me, doing what I do. Preaching the gospel, pastoring people. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is right or good. This passage gives me so much hope. Why? Because the gospel says people can change. People can radically change to which because they have experienced the grace of God in such a way, they now say no to ungodliness. They now say no to selfishness. They now say no to the way that everyone else operates in the world and they begin to say yes to God. And their yes to God begins to work in them, as Paul says in Romans, both to will and to do God's good pleasure. We can change by the grace of God. God's forgiveness is this powerful catalyst to work in our lives to transform us into people who do what is good or right in the world. That's what God's grace and forgiveness is all about. It's not just about cleaning the slate so we can go out and make it dirty again. Now, of course we will, but it is to change our mode of operation, to change our desires, to give us a hunger and a thirst for what is right, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what God's grace does in those who have been forgiven, in those who have experienced God's grace. The work of grace compels us not only to not continue in sin, but instead to offer ourselves to God to do what is right. Frederick Dale Bruner said this, Forgiveness like nothing else equips those who have been forgiven against future willful sinning. I love that. I'm going to say that one more time. Forgiveness like nothing else 
equips those who have been forgiven against future willful sinning. There is incredible transformative power in forgiveness. And this might be the greatest hallmark of a follower of Jesus. We are forgiven people who now forgive others. We are graced people who now offer grace to others. We are those whom God has made peace with. And now we are made peacemakers sent out into the world. We are those who have received God's righteousness in Christ. And so now we live out that righteousness and justice in the places that God has called us. See, the problem among God's people is not that we don't take sin seriously enough, but actually that we don't take the grace and forgiveness of God serious enough. I think one of the most beautiful and profound examples of compelling grace in Western literature might be the character and story of Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. Maybe you saw it, you know, one of your trips to New York or L.A. Maybe you got to see the early film and then there's the later film where half the people can't even sing. It's too bad. (laughs) Kind of ruined it a little bit. But maybe you're familiar with the story. Jean Valjean is a, you know, he's a criminal. And in those days, actually much like our criminal justice system today, criminals were marked for life. They could never get anywhere from that caste system. They could never work their way out of that reputation. And so Jean Valjean is released from prison and he's, he's trying to do what is honest, but of course, he's a criminal. That's all he's ever known. That's all he's ever done. And so there's that scene where, you know, the priest has compassion on him and gives him a place to sleep. And in the middle of the night, what does he do? He begins to take all the silver. He's going to rip off this priest who's shown him grace and compassion. And when he's caught, he beats the priest unconscious, steals the silver and takes off. Well, a few hours later, he's caught by the police. He's brought back to the priest and they present him. Here he is. It's this incredible scene where the priest just flips the whole narrative on its head and begins to say, why did you leave so quickly? You didn't give us the chance to say goodbye, and you didn't take all of the silver that you were given. And he begins to load his bag with the rest of the silver. He dismisses the police officers who are going to take Jean Valjean back to prison. He says these words to him, go in peace. By the way, when you return, my friend, it is not necessary to pass through the garden. You can always enter and depart through the street door. It is never fastened with anything but a latch, either by day or by night. He begins to dignify him. He begins to give him this incredible honor. Oh, you don't have to come through the side door. You come right through the front. It's never locked for you. Always accessible. He dismisses the police, and then he turns 
to Jean Valjean in a low voice and says, do not forget, never forget that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained speechless. The bishop had emphasized the words when he uttered them. He resumed with solemnity. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Now, I know that this is just a story. It's a great story, but it's only a story. And so I want you to take a moment and imagine your deepest, darkest secret, your sin that has marked your life, whether current or in the past, being brought before the people that you respect the most that you admire or fear. If they only knew who you really were. If they knew your sin, they would absolutely reject you. And then imagine your sin being exposed, stripped naked before all of them. And you can imagine their shock and horror, their disgust, their ridicule, their judgments. Can even imagine the secret thoughts that they are not vocalizing over their horror at your true self. And all of a sudden they start talking about the penalty, the punishment for you. What is the judgment that your sin deserves? The voices increase, the shouts grow, all with the demand for judgment and justice, and then all of a sudden, one voice speaks, maybe even in murmured, hushed tones. You can't quite make out the words, and then everything stops. It's completely silent. And you begin to hear stones thump as they hit the ground, and every accusation falls one after another, recounting your wrongs and failures until at last a voice pierces the silence. Where are your accusers, Christ says? Do none condemn you? Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares. Go now and leave your life of sin. What is your response going to be? What should our response be? Here's the response of one grateful, sinful, broken human. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. 
Now, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. And let your goodness, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. This is the gospel. This is the work that the grace of God is meant to do in every forgiven person. To compel us to give ourselves over to God completely. Just as Christ gave himself completely for us. Just as he was condemned in our place so that we could be free. Now we give ourselves entirely to God to discover God's will. To do what is good, right, true, and beautiful in the world. And now to offer that same grace that we have received, we've experienced to those around us. Those who have sinned against us. Those who have wronged us. That we would offer that same grace of God. Neither do I condemn you. Now this morning, we have our table set before us and the opportunity to receive that same grace that we just read about. To come here with our thoughts maybe of condemnation, heaviness, burden of guilt, shame, whatever it might be. Broken relationships, we have that opportunity to meet Jesus in all of his grace and all of his mercy and to hear those words spoken over us afresh and anew. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. I say this all the time, but that's what this table really is about. It's meant to recalibrate us. It, we come to the table as we are, but as we leave the table, God sends us in a trajectory of grace. God sends us to now live out his grace in the world, to live in hope, to live in joy, to live in peace because of the freedom that we have experienced in forgiveness. And so I encourage you as we sing and worship this morning, just that you would just allow this story and the power of grace to just wash over you and to come to the table as you feel ready to Meet with the Lord to allow his word of grace and forgiveness to be spoken over you and to allow his spirit to send you in that trajectory of grace. So let's do that together.